Welcome to Dermalogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc. through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome back to Dermalogs, Season 5. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax, full-time academic at Dalhousie. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from doctors outside your centre. And this podcast is designed to change some of that by helping you, the dermatology residents, get answers from leading experts across the country. This season, we're taking a deep dive into complicated medical dermatology, and I'm talking to a variety of leading dermatologists about how they diagnose and treat complex cases. Today, I'm thrilled to have Dr. Alexandra Mareniak join us to talk about neutrophilic stuff. I was going to say neutrophilic dermatoses, but I'm going to change it to neutrophilic stuff. So Dr. Mareniak is an associate professor of dermatology at the University of Montreal. She's the co-founder and co-director of the Combined Dermatology Internal Medicine Clinic at Sacré-Cœur Hospital, a specialized referral center for patients with complex systemic cutaneous disease, including rheumatologic and autoimmune blistering diseases. Alex, Welcome to Dermalogs. Hi, Carrie. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me on Dermalogs. I'm really excited to talk about neutrophilic stuff. <laughs> I guess I'll say neutrophilic dermatoses, but um, and I don't know if some of our listeners may have been CDA members that tuned in to listen to the uh, complex dermatology medical power half hour that you and Dr. Midlarski did. And you touched on a number of different neutrophilic dermatoses that I was hoping we could dive into a little bit deeper today. Sure, that's a great idea. I think it's a subject that really encompasses many different conditions. So I like your your term, uh, neutrophilic things. Uh, there, there's definitely, I mean, what what do we think of when we think of neutrophilic dermatoses? I guess things that come to mind are like sweet syndrome, uh, pyoderma gangrenosum, but then you could have other things like uh, erythema nodosum, mm-hmm. uh, leukocytoclastic vasculitis, uh, the neutrophilic urticarias. So it is, uh, it is quite a wide subject. Well, you've actually basically listed most of the things that I was hoping we could talk about. So that's perfect. What a busy schedule. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see what we can cover because we don't want to take all day. I'm sure we could probably talk about neutrophilic uh, things all day. But I think the first one um, and the one that kind of comes to mind usually for learners, I find, is is pyoderma gangrenosum. Um, So I guess one of the things that I have a bit of a challenge with even now is sometimes deciding if it's not that sort of a slam dunk classic pyoderma, um, you know, what are some of the clinical clues that should make me think about pyoderma? When should I biopsy? Um, We often get referrals here from wound care saying, you know, this is pyoderma, but intralesional Kenalog didn't work and the patient rolls in and it's clearly a venous ulcer. So um, maybe you could share with us what are your, you know, when you see a person and you think it's PG, what are you looking for? Right. That's a very good question. I think we do get a lot of these referrals and sometimes patients will come in in a more acute setting where it's maybe a little more obvious, but we do get these referrals for these chronic patients that are just not responding to therapy. Um, I think this chronic aspect of uh, uh, ulcers also brings to mind that 
usually PG is something that will tend to evolve quite quickly. So if I'm being referred this chronic stagnant uh, ulcer that's just not been evolving as expected for the past two years, that's usually not the top of my radar. Uh, So I think chronicity is a big one there. Then obviously, we're going to want to look for the associated symptoms. So pain is a a definite big one. I think a a painless pyoderma um, should you should probably be reconsidering your diagnosis. It's it's definitely something that's a little suspicious if it is painless. Um, the other thing will be kind of the rapid evolution, obviously with pathology. Um, so in terms of history, these are things we want to be looking for. Obviously, depending on the context of the patient, uh, we're going to want to look for certain associated conditions, although a good part of these uh, pyodermas are idiopathic, so it's not necessarily always associated with another condition. And then when we're looking at more our our clinical exam, obviously certain clues will be the the border of the lesion. So when we teach our residents, we often uh, talk about that gunmetal gray, the purplish border, the undermined border as well. So those are some more uh, classic features of pyoderma. But sometimes you get these unusual presentations, right, where they can start Mm -hmm. off with more pustular lesions, which then secondarily ulcerate, or you can have the more bullous ones as well, or these kind of deeper-seated paniculitis-like lesions that eventually ulcerate. So I I think People think of ulcers when they think of pyoderma, but we can certainly have a variety of clinical manifestations as well. So those are important clues to look for. I think that's really important because, as you said, the the sort of one that has the gunmetal cribiform undermined edge is sort of a one that we can all agree is likely pyoderma. I think having that level of suspicion for other lesions is is what catches us at times. Um, I'm curious if you have a person, like let's just say for the sake of a discussion, 25-year-old male comes in, um, new lesions on the lower extremity, classic pyoderma, what type of um, associations or screening do you do for that sort of just average young person that comes in with a new diagnosis pyoderma? Let's say up until then is otherwise healthy. So I'm going to tend to be pretty large starting off. So obviously, we're going to want to do a biopsy. And this sometimes uh, is concerning to our residents or to other referring doctors, because everybody worries about the pathology and is scared Mm -hmm. to actually do that biopsy. But I think it's important just because we do have so many mimickers there. And we definitely want to include an infection, an atypical infection. So you're going to want to get a a specimen there for cultures, uh, for bacteria, mycobacteria, uh, and so on. I think that's definitely something that we're going to do systematically. Mm. After that, in terms of like histology, well, it's obviously a diagnosis of exclusion. So the presence of vasculitis in our biopsy sometimes can lead to a little bit of confusion as well. I think that we can re-talk about vasculitis later on, but um, there can certainly be some secondary changes there. Uh, Although we do have certain conditions like the ANCA-associated vasculitides that do Uh, present with pyoderma-like lesions. So that's the one thing. And then in terms of just general workup, 
what comes to mind with a younger patient uh, is going to be more of the inflammatory bowel um, aspect mm. of things. So definitely based on the, the questionnaire, we're maybe going to have a higher or lower level of suspicion. But I tend to, to systematically order uh, calprotectin, um, which can be a marker. And then depending on the results of that, I'll send them to gastroenterology. Mm -hmm. I'm going to want to also get our basic uh, CBC, our biochemical uh, analyses as well uh, to start off. And then how wide do you go? I think in an older patient, you're going to want to look for more hematologic-based disorders with a serum protein electrophoresis, light chains as well. In a younger patient, uh, I think it's not something I'm necessarily going to systematically order right off the bat, um, unless I find anemia, unless I find other indirect signs of a periprotein disorder. And then again, based on kind of the questionnaire, how wide do I want to go on the vasculitis front? Uh, so like with the with ANCAs, for example, um, rheumatoid factor, as we can have certain presentations uh, that are going to include arthritis and uh, um, splenomegaly, as well as uh, pyoderma gangrenosum with the Felty syndrome. Usually the patients will have some other symptoms there as well on, on history or physical exams. So I think that can kind of be discussed. And then the whole thrombophilic kind of uh, workup mm -hmm. as well, um, which tends to also be ordered to exclude other causes. Although then again, the history will often kind of guide us or point us in that direction or another. So that kind of classic, you know, full history and physical with a, with a, reasonable investigations that we kind of all said our, as our exam is, is the reality of the way that you would kind of approach I this. Think, it I like. think it is, honestly. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. The, the most important part of it, I think, being that that culture that we do want to get with the, the biopsy. Absolutely. Really make sure that we're not missing any typical infection, especially in an otherwise healthy 25-year-old that really has no other medical history. So I want to come back and talk about treatment in a minute, but I'm wondering about those patients who the initial workup is negative. When might you go digging deeper? So is it a person who's not responding appropriately? And and I only say this because I remember being a resident and a young guy came in and he kept presenting in what looked like a um, sepsis almost, like a systemic inflammatory response, like very unwell. He'd get admitted to the ICU. It was pyoderma. And initial workup was all negative. A um, little bit of weirdness on the CBC, but nothing major. And then it was about three years later that he presented with an acute leukemia. Um, and, you know, I think it was one of those things where every time he'd come in, you'd kind of scratch your head and go, hmm, um, and then maybe recheck a few things. But what's your tendency in those, you know, recurrent patients or the ones that maybe initially seem okay? When do you go digging deeper? I hope right. that made sense as a question. <laughs> Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, I can't say that I have a standard answer for this, but this is kind of the reality of what I see in my uh, internal med combined clinic. We get referred these refractory cases or these cases with underlying comorbidities. And sometimes it's all about, you know, just going back to that initial diagnosis. Are we treating mm -hmm. the right thing? Why is it not responding? And then did we miss something that might be driving this condition? Um, so I certainly have a bias there of finding rare associations, but it's important to still go back to the basics and not over investigate our patients and then get stuck with some results that we don't necessarily have a clinical correlation for. 
Um, so I think if I've done my standard workup, I'm satisfied with it, I start a treatment, things go well, I'm not necessarily going to dive in deeper. Um, now, obviously, the other thing I didn't mention in my workup is the, the pre-immunosuppressive workup, depending mm-hmm. on how far I want to go in the, in the treatment. Um, but yes, so let's say I haven't had the expected response to well, our, our classic go-to in a lot of these uh, neutrophilic dermatoses is going to be prednisone. Right. The patient doesn't respond to, to prednisone, and then I'll switch them over to another drug, and then they're still not responding. Well, then I might go in a little deeper at that point. Okay. So I think as soon as I don't have the, the expected response to therapy, I will dive deeper into investigations. And I think it's really important um, what you said for the residents to know that, you know, you know, if you think something is one thing, but it's not responding in the way to kind of go back to those basics. I think that's really important and go, did I get the diagnosis right? Did I miss anything? And I think we all do that regularly. Um, I feel like maybe when I was a resident, I thought I was going to finish and just always know what everything was, but that couldn't be further from the truth. I think we're really good at learning these like therapeutic ladders, you know, step one, two, three, and shooting out the information and going with the algorithm. But sometimes you have to get out of that therapeutic ladder and just take a step back. And I mean, it's happened that uh, we're throwing immunosuppressive after immunosuppressive uh, to treat whatever inflammatory condition and then ends up that the patient is actually doing badly because they have a complication of that immunosuppressive treatment. Um, so like an infection or so sometimes uh, we just have to take a step back. And I think that that's really an important message for the residents. I, I totally agree. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've certainly, you know, I should admit to this, but I've had a, a bad immunobolus patient that I was treating with rituximab and kept getting these little new uh, lesions and just kept pressing harder. And it turned out that the secondary new lesions were MRSA um, that we realized after finally going, what's happening? So I, I can admit to that. And I think it's important that we always think about what we're doing and treating and, and potential side effects. Of course, I think that's really important to share with the residents as well. I mean, um, even in the these complex cases, uh, same with me, uh, immunobolus patient with a mucous membrane pemphigoid that just wasn't responding, rituximab, IVIG, prednisone, had these recurrent oral lesions, and it ended up being CMV. So it's really important to, to kind of yeah. think about all the comorbidities and the complications of our therapies. 100%. Now, you did mention treatment ladder. And so despite the fact that we recognize that some people don't go along the treatment ladder, what would be your classic treatment ladder for biopsy proven, ruled out the other stuff, run of the mill, PG? Yeah, so I think in most patients, I will definitely be starting off with prednisone, a gradual taper over a number of weeks based on the clinical evolution. So I don't necessarily have like a go-to timeline. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to limit the prednisone to a maximum of three months. And then uh, obviously the the complications of chronic corticosteroid therapy uh, come in a little more at that point. Um, And then as a second go-to, if I'm not getting the desired response or for whatever reason I don't want to give prednisone um, because the patient has uncontrolled diabetes or something of the sort, my other kind of big go-to is going to be cyclosporin to get really that quick response and get 
again, the, the condition under control rapidly. Mm-hmm. Cyclosporin also does come with its challenges, obviously, in terms of drug interactions, in terms of follow-up. But I find it's a molecule that works well, works quickly, and I, I tend to use it in, in a lot of conditions. So these are kind of like the two big uh, kind of bazookas to get things under control. (laughs) (laughs) I I like thinking of them as a bazooka. Just before we move on to next steps, what general, you know, I've always kind of gone in the higher dosing range with cyclosporin for neutrophilic. I tend to go with the five milligrams per kilo approach and then taper it down to the two milligrams gradually. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That tends to be my approach as well. And with prednisone, I mean, depending on the size of the patient, I'm not necessarily going to do one milligram per kilo because that could be quite a, quite a big dose. Could and be a lot of prednisone sometimes. <laughs> so sometimes it's closer to the 0.5 milligrams per kilo, but I usually start off strong and then taper down. Okay. And then after the bazooka, what, what do you come in with for the more pleasant long-term options? <laughs> <laughs> so then I open up my suitcase of uh, anti-neutrophilic agents. Right. Um, so Dapsone, Colchicine, Sulfasalazine. These are kind of uh, the, the drugs I turn to in these neutrophilic conditions. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like to say that usually I, I tend to choose the one that will come with maybe the least uh, potential side effects or the easiest follow-up and management. So I tend to start off with colchicine Mm -hmm. uh, in most patients. And then if that doesn't respond as expected, I'll switch into Dapsone unless I have a a G6PD deficit um, that would make me choose another alternative. So those are kind of my go-tos in terms of the anti-neutrophilic, more long-term chronic agents. Now, how long would you tend to give, like, let's say you put somebody on colchicine, how long do you give it before you throw in the towel and go, okay, this isn't going to work, I have to move to Dapsone? It's a good question. Um, I can't say there's like a precise algorithm there in terms of duration. Um, But with PG, seeing as it does tend to, you know, be very painful and could deteriorate rapidly if things are not under control and get super infected. um, If after about a six-week trial, the lesion is still progressing, then I might consider changing therapies. I think the goal is really to stabilize the PG. And then after that, just wait with time. It, it They do end up closing up. But um, I, I guess I do have a certain bias there of these refractory cases. So yes, most cases will hopefully respond to that first course of prednisone and not necessarily require these second, third line treatments, but being... Uh, Sometimes they do. <laughs> yes, they do. And and what would be your typical go-to if you fail on your neutrophilic suitcase? Like, are you into TNFs at that point or have you, do you do yeah, something so different? Usually that's when I'm going to go into anti-TNFs. Um, maybe before delving into the anti-TNFs, I'm just going to, again, make sure I've gone through my workup and I'm still convinced of my diagnosis there because again, we're entering kind of a new chapter of, of treatment. Yes. Take a little step back, but yes, in terms of a treatment algorithm, I'll try to get my patients on an anti-TNF at that point. Now it's not always successful depending on the insurance that the patient is on. Absolutely. I've had some uh, upsetting experiences where the insurance provider requested that we try minocycline. So sometimes sending a picture 
uh, is also worth a thousand words when you have an exposed tendon on a leg. Um, some, they, they can be more easily convinced to pay those higher level drugs. That's an excellent tip. And the, the listeners couldn't see my face when you said medicine, but it was not impressed. Um, that's wild. Now, do you have any before, you know, and maybe this is more important when we're talking, because uh, I'm going to lead us into peristomal PG momentarily, mm-hmm. but just maybe just a word about dressings. Um, because I find that, you know, at least a tendency here is if people have come from a wound care clinic or had someone look at it from a wound care perspective, they'll, they'll be putting on tons and tons of stuff and they're changing it frequently. And then you're kind of going, well, that's the you know, basic principles of, of dressings. Do you have any dressings tips um, when it comes to your PG patients? Yeah, that's a really important uh, point, Carrie. I think, I mean, I didn't go into the the other causes of uh, ulcers, but for sure you want to make sure that also the arterial status is good, the venous status is good, and then just your local wound care management. And obviously with the, the pathology, you want to try and change these dressings the least possible. So mm-hmm. if we're trying to aim for once or twice a week maximum to try to minimize that Kebner phenomenon. I'd say our, our hospital wound care team is pretty used to managing PG at this point. But when you have Mm -hmm. patients going back to the community to have their dressings changed by community nursing, it's really important to mention uh, not to have any debridement being done, to keep things very simple with just saline irrigation. I do use uh, complementary topicals in uh, really most of my patients, Mm -hmm. depending on, uh, on, on the wound itself. Uh, sometimes it'll be the the topical corticosteroid, like a clobetazole ointment or, or cream that I'll have the patient apply directly to the lesion. Uh, if there's some of these more oozing uh, lesions, uh, kind of more humid ones, then I'll sometimes go for uh, the inhaler pumps, mm-hmm. like Ovent that they can use uh, uh, locally. And then you have all sorts of other topicals like uh, tacrolimus ointment, uh, chromalin drops. So, and I've tried a few of these over the years. I can't say that I have a preference for one over the other, but in terms of uh, of dressings and just local wound care, we want to avoid infection. So, depending on um, on again the the accessibility in terms of dressing and wound care changes, things like um, uh, you know the the silver based dressings I do use. In, uh, in some of my patients. Some of them have responded well to iodine-based products, although you might want to just be a little more wary of, uh, of that little local debridement that can mm-hmm. happen with the iodine ointments. I try to keep it as simple as possible and the least changes possible per week. So the, the, absorbs- the absorbent dressings do tend to come in useful. And sometimes just having... Um, you know, the, the Coban style boot that the patient mm-hmm. won't be able to remove on their own and is kind of going to be stuck there for a week. Um, it is a good thing because we do have some patients that tend to not tolerate their, their compression and uh, tend to remove their dressings or think they're doing them on their own properly. So you do want to have some trained nursing staff available when it comes to compression. Right. No, th- I think those are really good tips. And this is going to lead us into my next topic, which is 
peristomal PG. So um, I think part of what we just talked about is going to be really relevant when we're looking at uh, a breakdown area that requires frequent appliance changes. Um, but maybe just to back it up even further, um, we get a lot of referrals for you know skin breakdown around a stoma site. And so rather than just jumping into going as peristomal PG, you know, how do you approach that, you know, peristomal skin breakdown? Um, do you, you know, do you patch test everybody? Do you like, how do you kind of manage making the diagnosis in the first place? And then maybe we can talk about treatment specific to that area. Mm-hmm. I think luckily um, PG is not the main cause of ulcers in the peristomal <laughs> area. Exactly. Um, so definitely we're going to want to think about the common things um, like candida infection, which can lead to erosive uh, kind of dermatitis around the stomal area. We're going to want to think about contact dermatitis, um, irritant contact dermatitis a lot of the times as well. So not just uh, the allergic uh, variety. I find our, our stoma nurses are just such experts uh, in this field and in these yes. like first line management. So I'm often relying a lot on them for suggestions in terms of dressings and just local care around that uh, stomal area. Um, I, I find what has led to uh, a few confusing diagnoses on my end is this concept of pressure ulcers in the stomal area. And I think mm-hmm. this is something when I, I started off practice that I had not really been so exposed to. And I've come to realize with time that, that it's a lot more common than we realize. So p- patients can get herniation uh, in their, their surgical sites, and then this leads to secondary pressure, and the pressure will lead to ulcerations. I think our, our surgery colleagues are probably more used to managing this. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we're consulted as dermatologists, it's maybe not the top of our radar. Um, but again, I would just go back to, you know, if we're thinking pyoderma, it should be something that's deteriorating quickly, that's very painful, that has that inflammatory border, whereas you're not going to have these inflammatory borders and these more pressure-based ulcers. So I've definitely Mm -hmm. made some mistakes in management there with certain patients before catching on that there was this underlying uh, compression issue. I um, similarly have you know, seen people and, and get they get sent as peristomal PG from my GI or surgical colleagues. And I'm going, wait a second. But I find it very challenging in that area. Beyond mm-hmm. that, you know, if there is an inflammatory component, do you have any tips or tricks for, like you mentioned, you know, puffer-based steroids? Do you use much intralesional steroid? How do you... I do, do I do. So, I mean, when I was reviewing the the data regarding intralesional kenalog, it seems that um, the the data is not so great. The response mm. rates are not so high, but that actually tends to be my my go to. Um, so, I don't know if there's like a reporting bias there, but it is usually what I start off with, and I find that I've had quite some good responses. Going back to do you biopsy or do you not biopsy? Now, I've had um, some cases that have come to me with a previously done biopsy by the surgeon. So that's Mm -hmm. amazing. I'm very happy with that. Sometimes they are not biopsied. And I have had cases where, you know, the bowel uh, is eviscerated through ulcers. So I tend to be a little skeptical and wanting to biopsy myself because yes. of the- I totally agree. 
So I, I personally tend to treat first if I'm clinically convinced uh, and not always biopsy. So I'm kind of going against what I said previously for that chronic leg ulcer. But for these peristomal ulcers, I'll tend to start off with the Kenalog, give it a, a couple of shots uh, over a period of a few weeks. And then if I'm not responding to my intralesional Kenalog injections, uh, maybe have that biopsy done either by myself or uh, with the surgery colleague. Yeah, I think that's important that if, you know, when you see bowel or when you see things that you're just not 100% sure that just blindly biopsying is not always a great plan. And at least locally, I've, I've had um, surgeons be uh, ha- easily, you know, convinced to take a piece um, and send it to our dermatopathologist. So that's a nice I usually tend to fill out the requisition for them as well. To make the correct <laughs> like just take there. the peas, but I'll do the rest. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think we can probably agree peristomal disease is, is very challenging. And I, I feel like I've seen a lot more of it over the last few years than I had previously. And I, so I don't know. I agree. I agree. I, I've really been seeing a lot in the past five years and our, uh, our stoma nurses as well are, seem to be seeing this tendency. So I don't know what that's about. Uh, certainly uh, maybe an interesting subject for a study. Yeah, there you go. Uh, any students could think about that. We'll be back to Dermalogs after this brief message from the CDA. Mark your calendars. The 99th CDA Annual Conference, hosted by the Canadian Dermatology Association, is scheduled from June 26th to June 29th, 2024 and it will take place in our nation's capital city, Ottawa. A well-established, leading conference by and for certified Canadian dermatologists, it offers top-tier education and patient advocacy. Find out more at dermatology.ca forward slash conference. And now, back to Dermalogs. I'm going to shift gears a bit and maybe move on to a different neutrophilic thing, um, which is the sweets. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there's times where you kind of go is, you know, what, what neutrophilic thing are we dealing with? And, and to some extent, there's a lot of similarity, but, um, in terms of a patient that's presenting with the classic features of, of sweets, uh, so let's say, you know, mid fifties or woman, uh, has a hematologic, um, well, no, maybe we don't give her hematologic malignancies cause that's pretty, it's pretty really straightforward, but, you know, febrile, juicy nodules and papules, head and neck, feeling kind of garbage. Um, Are there other things that pop up on your differential there? How do you kind of approach a potential sweets patient? Good question. So I find with sweets, we learned that their sweets by definition has to be associated with uh, fever and these other disorders. I find a lot of the time in clinic, we're not necessarily seeing this whole like febrile uh, context or sometimes just coming in with these purplish infiltrated plaques. Um, so, I mean, we go back to our differential of kind of infiltrated uh, purplish plaques. So for our residents, uh, things like lupus tumidus, suggestners, um, sarcoidosis, uh, think about uh, pseudolymphomas, B-cell uh, cutaneous lymphomas, so this kind of uh, 
classic differential. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, the, the biopsy differential, again, our pathologists are not necessarily going to spell out sweets to us. It's going to take <laughs> clinical... Clinical uh, correlation uh, is required. <laughs> definitely, because uh, you have a bunch of other disorders, uh, erythema, elevatum, uh, the cannot. Mm-hmm present with more of these neutrophilic changes. I think the classic distribution uh, of sweets leads us to think of, uh, of, of this condition in our differential, but then you have these patients that present with uh, the, the variant of the dorsal hands, or they can present mm-hmm. elsewhere, or the subcutaneous sweets as well, which tends to be a little more deeper seated and maybe see a bit more arthritis in these patients. Um, so I think in terms of uh, in terms of diagnosis, um, definitely the the clinical exam, the biopsy, the correlation uh, is key. And yes. then after that, the workup. I mean, will depend again. I think on on the age of the patient, on the context of the patient. Like you mentioned, I think hematologic disorders are differential are definitely higher up in our differential. Uh, but then you don't want to neglect everything that's more infectious, maybe in a younger population. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this can just be a reactive process. Or the other large chapter is the drug-induced sweets. Right. Like if you pull up the list of drugs described as inducing sweets, uh, you can pretty much name anything and you will have a correct answer on there for your <laughs> All drugs. All drugs, vaccines, really, it's a, it, it's a very, very wide list. And I've had uh, some patients as well referred to me through hematology that were already followed for a paraprotein disorder, um, but that secondary to their actual treatment developed sweets. So that's also uh, sometimes a little challenging to see between is this the underlying condition driving the sweets or is it a drug-induced sweets? I think in these cases, um, sometimes histology could help. Maybe we have a little bit more eosinophils, but not always because some of these uh, you know, leukemic patients or patients on uh, on the chemotherapies are, are not going to have many newts or eosinophils. So that's not right. always a direct marker. We've actually had a few uh, in recent weeks as well of patients admitted to hematology about to undergo or just starting their treatment and again, develop these, you know, um, juicy papules or firm nodules and, and they kind of go, well, could this be sweets? And, you know, we usually biopsy it just to rule out secondary infections, et cetera. But um, sometimes I'm thinking, well, yeah, it looks like sweets and they have a risk for sweets and you're going to treat it and it's going to go away. So I'm not really sure what we're doing, but we do it anyway, just thinking about other, other options. But um, I, I found that kind of a few times recently, even last week, we got consulted for a patient with new diagnosis, leukemia with these lesions and hadn't started treatment. And we just said, well, why don't you Treat it. Right. <laughs> Treat the leukemia. Um, I, mean, I guess in because the these particular lesions, to your point earlier, were not bothering the patient. Like they weren't sore. Mm-hmm. They weren't, you know. So anyway. yeah, I guess in the in the differential uh, that hematologists don't want to miss is leukemia cutis, which might maybe True. change kind of their treatment regimen. So. I used to kind of argue and go with just the clinical impression and 
I mean, I'm I'm purely hospital based, and at this point, I I find it sometimes quicker to just do the biopsy. Even we just do the I biopsy it, too. It's yeah. not going to change my plan. It's not going to change my impression. I mean, obviously, sometimes you you do come up with surprises, but we'll tend to do the biopsy more to to reassure the consultant. But we, I'll, yeah, I'll usually I agree. You. Agree. And I think, you know, residents are always hospital based when they're in residency and then things may change when they're out. But same with me being fully hospital based. I I often say, listen, guys, like if there's a question or a concern and it's going to come up later, why didn't you biopsy? We should just biopsy and then we can provide our clinical opinion. But at least that way we have the little tissue cooking um, in case there is that other, you know, diagnosis that comes up or surprises us. Mm -hmm. Um. Okay. And I think, you know, with respect to sweets, probably a very similar type of treatment. Uh, you're pulling out the steroids for your early bazooka, if I were guessing. <laughs> you're nodding. Yes. 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 And um, I mean, sweets, we're going to want to treat the underlying condition, but I find this is maybe another challenge that comes up. I don't know about uh, in your neck of the woods, Carrie, but kind of these, uh, these secondary, these man- cutaneous manifestations that are secondary to hematologic disorders mm-hmm. tends to be uh, an issue sometimes because there's not always for the hematologist uh, a, a clear reason to treat. But then we as dermatologists see that the condition is really related to this underlying hematologic disorder. And then it's the whole back and forth of, well, if you were to treat the underlying condition, maybe our cutaneous involvement would get better. So this this has happened to me with like scleroedema, scleromyxedema, even recently a case of Sneddon-Wilkinson, where we found a paraprotein in the blood, um, but it's being called MGUS and not myeloma. So there's no criteria for them to treat it from a hematologic standpoint. And then it kind of brings up the whole chapter of, well, is this really MGUS? It's not necessarily an unsignificant, you know. That's right. It's it's, it's significance or a cutaneous significance. So there's been some articles there of MGCS, so monoclonal gammopathy of cutaneous significance. And I think uh, we as dermatologists need to kind of advocate more for this with our hematology uh, colleagues to get some of these patients treatment. Absolutely. Actually, I share a case with uh, a local hematologist and she said, you know, she has sort of indolent follicular um, lymphoma, but I'm wondering about treating it because she's getting these new weird skin lesions. Um, and so the lady did come up. It it actually looked, they looked urticated. I thought it was going to be urticarial type of vasculitis, but it did show chock full of neutrophils. Um, and this is a nice example of the hematologist then saying, okay, well, despite the fact that the follicular lymphoma piece is relatively indolent, the skin is clearly related, we're going to treat it. And so she's um, going to start her chemo regimen next week. So I think, you know, you're right. There are times where the cutaneous involvement is what's problematic for the patient. And if you have a good, um, I don't want to say good, that came out wrong. But if you have, if you and your hematologist work together, uh, colleague work together, then occasionally they'll, they'll treat it. And I think that's, I have noticed that changing since, um, 
since when I first started practice where they kind of go, well, no, there's no need to, to treat it. I feel like some of the hemes that do a lot of malignant hematology reach to us and say, well, is this skin thing related? Like this would change whether I want to treat them. And, and that's good for patients. Right. I think communication is key. And uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of new um, combined multidisciplinary clinics happening in, in many fields. And I think yeah. we're recognizing how this has a big role on the, the, the therapeutics for our patients, kind of the management of our patients and just getting everybody together and speaking is definitely uh, in the end a benefit for our patients and their treatment. Absolutely. Okay. Before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about vasculitis. Um, which admittedly is a giant mountainous topic that could probably, again, be a three-part series just on its own. Um, But maybe we could just, for the residents, sort of hit the highlights of vasculitis. I literally just, was when I was coming in to do this today, got off the elevator, the gentleman walking in front of me clearly had raging leukocytoclastic vasculitis on his legs. So he was heading to our waiting room. I was like, okay, you know, it was an elevator diagnosis, but maybe what are your uh, clinical clues for vasculitis? Um, How far do you go down that initial workup? Are you really kind of sticking to the, the small vessel vasculitides? Do you think about medium vessel? When do you pull out the biopsy? Just kind of hit me with your approach to uh, a person with palpable purpura. Let's start there. Okay, perfect. Well, I mean, if we're thinking palpable purpura, we're in our small vessel vasculitis chapter. We eliminate the medium and the large vessels, which are not going to present clinically in the same way. So I think just in terms of workup, it's going to be very different if we're thinking of small vessel versus medium vessel um, for our residents. Um, So small vessel vasculitis, we can kind of subdivide as the immune complex mediated or the ANCA associated. So again, our full physical and um, our our medical history is going to be important there. You're going to want to do a good review of symptoms, um, pulmonary, GI, arthritis, and then look for your, your triggers because luckily most of these cases are not these autoimmune chronic uh, multi-system diseases. We do mm-hmm. see a lot of just post-infectious uh, self-resolving uh, vasculitis in, uh, when it comes to palpable purpura. So what am I going to want to do as, uh, as a workup if I'm convinced that it's palpable purpura? Well, yes, I would argue the diagnosis is clinical, but I find biopsy is still very, very important. And especially you want to get that second biopsy for the DIF, um, because this is going to have an important prognostic ma- um, marker on your patient, and it's going to kind of mediate how you follow the patient as well, if you mm-hmm. find IgA vasculitis. Mm-hmm. Um, so this falls into the category of these immune complex small vessel vasculitides, where you're going to have IgA, cryo, urticarial vasculitis. And IgA vasculitis, actually, interestingly, I was uh, just listening virtually to the, the recent Room Derm Society meeting. And there's a, there's a study there looking at the, the incidence of uh, IgA vasculitis with COVID. And there have been increased numbers of IgA-mediated vasculitis. So I think this is important because it's going to mediate the renal follow-up we do for our patients. So even though I, it's a first episode and it seems pretty clear-cut and there seems to be you know, either a drug cause or 
an infectious cause, I'm still always going to want to get that DIF just because the, the management, the follow-up is going to be different. And then what kind of workup am I going to do for these patients? I think, again, there's the bias of uh, when are you catching them? Are you the first to see them during that first episode? Or is this a recurrent chronic vasculitis? And the workup's going to be a little different. Um, I think I will usually just start off with the, the basic biochemistry and the urine analysis. So that's going to be just a baseline workup for everybody. And then base, after that, based on evolution and follow-up, I'll add on. So I won't be ordering ANAs, ANCAs, SPEP for everybody starting off from a first episode, first visit in my clinic. Now, speaking of the, uh, so a couple of things that came up from that, but the, the urine analysis is obviously of paramount importance. Um, what do you do? I'm just going to see if you do the same thing as me, because I kind of just made this up. But like, let's say there's protein and blood in the urine. Um, usually I'll repeat that a week or so later. If there's still protein and blood in the urine, I'll usually do a 24-hour urine collection um, and then sort of check it after the acute uh, phase is over plus or minus referral to nephrology if those changes persist. But do you have a different approach to the urine? Uh, so if I have a change on the urine analysis, I'm going to order usually the ratio of protein over creat. Mm-hmm. And uh, if that does remain uh, elevated, I will involve my colleagues uh, either at the vasculitis clinic or in nephrology. Uh, I do have a very fast access to these specialists. So mm-hmm. I'd say I, I maybe refer a little faster just to get patients into the clinic and, and get them involved in studies if they are eligible. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm also going to repeat uh, usually after two weeks. And then normally at that point, they've been uh, taken in charge of by either nephro or vasculitis. Okay. Yeah. And I, I don't always have that. I have relatively rapid access. I think if people have frank uh, proteinuria or, or whatever, or tons of blood, then they'll, they'll usually see them um, relatively quickly. Although I have found in general, they tend to kind of just monitor it over time if it Right. Resolves, I but... agree with you. I, I think, uh, again, there's no like perfect standard of uh, clear cut follow up there, but maybe once a month for the first six months, if you want to be extra careful And then after that, it tends to be spread out. Totally. The other thing I was thinking, and this was something that I I don't know if I saw a lot of during residency, but I certainly did early in practice and realized it's more common than I thought. But, you know, you always kind of think about a small vessel vasculitis, pelvic purple, lower legs only or up to the waist. Um, But I find a lot of people do have arm involvement as well. And I, I, you know, they often do have that positive IgA in those patients, but is this, you're nodding as well. So I just, this is a clinical thing that I didn't know in residency, but that, you know, if the legs are involved, the arms may or may not be involved as well. And it's just something that I wasn't classically used to seeing. Right. uh, Agree with you. I think we often see involvement beyond the legs. So yes, the classic is the legs, but then the abdomen, the arms, do tend to, to be involved as well. And maybe like a, a, a key point message in terms of like where to biopsy for the residents as well. Yes. I didn't really go into that, but I mean, I'm going to try and biopsy. So if you want to get those two biopsies done, one for histology, one for DIF, and you want to try and time it. So it's not always easy because when the patient is full of these little papules, they're not always able to tell you which ones are newer, which ones are older. But the timing of the biopsy is, is very important. If you're mm-hmm. sampling an older 
an older purpura, well, you have more chances of having more of a lymphocytic infiltrate on your biopsy and not that neutrophilic one that you're looking for. And so the, the concept of, uh, you know, lymphocytic vasculitis uh, is certainly a whole subject of its own, but can get some, uh, some false negatives there or some other conditions that can look like vasculitis and, and that are not and that are actually lymphocytic and not neutrophilic. Um, so you're going to want to get the, that specimen between the 24 to 48 hours after it appears uh, for the histology. And then for the DIF, you're going to want to get one that's been there for less than 24 hours, ideally. So the freshest possible one. And this, just thinking back on the pathophysiology, right? If you're thinking of IgA vasculitis, you're going to have the deposit of those IgAs in the blood vessel first. After that, the neutrophils are going to come up and try to destroy that IgA, and that's what's going to destroy the blood vessel. So if you're sampling very early in the first 24 hours, you're getting those IgA deposits. If you're sampling in the 24, 48 hours, you're getting those neutrophils. And then beyond that, the chronic inflammation is kind of coming in. So that's something I, I tend to, to teach my residents uh, when they come on rotation as well. And we do sample the purpura itself and not the perilesional skin. Right. Um, which is that's important, I think, as well to really get that the um, most useful biopsy. I, I find that what happens sometimes is, you know, peripheral colleagues or eMERGE docs are like thinking they're helping and they take a biopsy, but they pick the most frankly necrotic area and you're like, no. Um, so then you have to biopsy the patient again because all you get is this like, you know, escar, necrotic, whatever, and it's really nonspecific. So really important to think about where you're biopsying and why. And I think that description you did was like so perfect and concise. So all the residents can remember that forever and ever <laughs> and ever. Um, and just before we close out, because I've been taking up a lot of your time, maybe a word on medium. I mean, large vessel vasculities don't really affect us too much. I don't, right. I don't see a ton of that, but, um, and if I do, I'm like, whoops, that's not for me. Um, so maybe a, maybe a word on medium vessel vasculitides and, and what are your clinical clues? Um, and what do you see the most of maybe, uh, right. in your practice? So, so in the medium vessel vasculitides, um, that's where you're going to have your classic, uh, polyarteritis nodosa. So I think that's the main one that comes to mind uh, as a dermatologist, you can have just the skin limited disease, but this is a whole, uh, a whole condition where you can also have more multi-systemic disease as well. And so clinically, we're not going to be looking for purpura in these patients. It's going to be subcutaneous nodules, uh, levido, there can be necrosis. So it's a whole other morphology chapter there. And in terms of biopsying, so Again, if you have a patient coming in with the nodules, you're going to want to go for one of these nodules with a deeper punch, at least a, a six millimeter punch to go to that subcutaneous mm -hmm. fat and get those medium vessels. If you have a patient presenting with levito, you're going to want to go in the center of the ring. Um, so, so these are important things in terms of biopsying. And um, in terms of just the workup for these patients, so yes, when we're thinking vasculitis, we think of the skin, we think of the, the kidneys, but this is not the kind of patient that you're going to order a urine analysis for. This is not the way to diagnose renal disease in a medium vessel vasculitis. So you're mm -hmm. going to get imaging done. Yes. So angio-CTs are the way to go. So um, that's maybe an, an important 
thing to, to think about when working up medium vessel vasculitis, that the kidney involvement is different. And then the, uh, the neurological involvement as well is maybe another big one. Uh, patients can get peripheral neuropathy, uh, mononevritis. So that's something that's going to be a little bit more common. And maybe the other take-home message when you have a patient that's presenting both with these cutaneous findings of medium and small vessel vasculitis, so the purpura and the levito and the nodules, uh, you're going to want to think about some of the mixed uh, mm-hmm. vasculities. So cryo and anca are two that could present with both the small and the medium vessel involvement as well. The biggest challenge I think we have sometimes with cryo, I, not anymore because I work in the hospital, but peripheral um, in my private office used to be an issue getting the cryoglobulins like timed at the right time or some of the labs didn't do them. And so I think if you are ordering that and you don't work in a hospital, making sure that your patient maybe goes to like a hospital-based lab to have it done or or it'll get you know, it will be useless. Definitely. And even within a hospital, it's not, uh, you know, all departments that are used to this. And the, the 37 degrees is very important. And it has to be brought to the lab at 37 degrees and then processed at 37 degrees. So there's a lot of limitations there. And we can come up with a lot of uh, false negatives when looking for cryo. So I think maybe something that could maybe be done more easily as an indirect marker is those complement levels, right? Mm -hmm. Like 3, C4, rheumatoid factor. These are a little more standard um, in terms of accessibility before moving on to the, the actual cryo. Awesome. So small vessel vasculitis, we're doing lab work and biopsies. Medium, we're doing imaging and biopsies and then mixture in between we're going to do maybe a little bit of both i think that's really important because it's 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 very challenging i find in the medium vessels to determine are they systemic or just cutaneous unless they present with something like glaringly obvious so thank you for breaking that down listen thank you so much for joining me today and talking about neutrophilic things I think we covered a lot of ground and there's certainly a number of clinical pearls that the residents are going to glean. So I just wanted to really say thank you. I appreciate you joining me on this episode of Dermalogs. Thanks again, Carrie. It was great. And uh, thanks for having me today. And thank you for listening. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. If you enjoyed it, please give us a rating and write a review where you listen. It helps others find these interviews. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. For more great CDA podcasts, be sure to check out JCMS Author Interviews, hosted by my colleague, Dr. Kirk Barber. Thanks again for joining us. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Birdie.